Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Unplug with Annie. We're continuing the series of Psyche and I have Dylan Mohan Gray on the show today. Dylan is an acclaimed Indian and Canadian filmmaker based in Mumbai. He originally trained as a historian. His debut documentary feature called Fire in the Blood premiered at Sundance and had the longest theatrical run of any non-fiction film in Indian cinema history. It was also selected amongst various festivals and won numerous awards. His latest film, The King of Good Times, debuted worldwide on Netflix in October 2020, as well as the Bad Boy Billionaires anthology series. He directed the first episode of that documentary also on Netflix. Hey Dylan, welcome to Unplug with Annie. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you because your journey seems fascinating. I had no idea you were a historian, to be honest. Um, so going from that to filmmaking, I mean, tell us a little bit about your journey uh, growing up, uh, being a historian essentially, and now also a filmmaker. How did that transition happen? Well, uh, it was sort of a, a bit of a checkerboard history uh, in the sense that Things went back and forth. I uh, was born in Canada uh, in a very isolated part of the country. My father was with the National Park Service in Canada, and uh, we lived in a lot of uh, beautiful but very wild places. And um, then um, when I was a kid, I got into um, to acting, uh, and I was a child actor, and I used to do a lot of theater and uh, some commercials as well. Uh, where I grew up, there was not really a such a thing as a film and television industry at that time. Um, so that wasn't even really on the radar. But um, I, you know, I enjoyed acting a lot. You know, I was a very shy kid, very introverted, and that sort of brought me out of my shell. And um, I, over time, got interested in the process of making theater and started writing and directing plays. And from that, uh, started making videos of when I was about 12, 13. Uh, with my friends and most of them were sort of tongue-in-cheek sort of horror movie par parodies and things like that but uh, you know figuring out how to uh, how, how to make rudimentary films at that time and continue to act continue to direct theater and uh, um, into college and uh, you know it, it never really dawned on me that this would be something you could really do as a profession so I never really thought of it in those terms uh, and then when I went to uh, university in the US I just happened to live next door to um, a film studies major who was involved with a lot of the student production. So I ended up working on a lot of those student films and uh, actually through those people as they were graduating from college, they started to, you know, to make their own films in a sort of indie, in the indie film scene in New York primarily, uh, which was a few hours away from where I went to school. So started working on those projects. And in the meantime, um, I relocated to Europe. I was living in Budapest at that time, and uh, I was also acting in films there, mostly really bad ones. <laughs> but uh, there, there's various evidence of this on the internet, which can be uncovered. Um, and, you know, I continued to sort of think about filmmaking, but then I, you know, I had studied history and film studies in university. And one of the reasons I studied history is because I was just very interested in, in everything. And I sort of, you know, bounced 
between different disciplines. And then at some point it dawned on me that history was everything, that it encompassed everything. So for somebody that has many interests, there's really only one option and that's to study history. So I went back to graduate school and studied history and I was very happy. Uh, and uh, I think I was doing the best work I probably ever did at that time. And then by sheer accident, uh, while I was in Budapest, I ran into a friend of mine who I used to act with in Canada uh, completely randomly. Uh, and it turns out he was there um, working on a movie with David Cronenberg, who I'd always been a huge fan of, for those who don't know, well, a very highly respected Canadian film director. And uh, so I got very excited about that. And I said, you know, can I come meet him and see him work? Uh, you know, would that be possible? And he said, yeah, that's possible. And I could actually get you a job if you're interested. I mean, you speak Hungarian and English. And uh, yeah, so I was like, great. <laughs> I was writing my thesis at that time. So I had time, you know, I was at a flexible schedule. So I got a job as an assistant director uh, on that on that film. And, um, and then, uh, yeah, it sort of um, through that, I ended up getting into the film industry, uh, mostly working on North American and British productions that were shooting in Europe initially, and then started doing a lot of international co-productions, treaty co-productions. And then I was very interested in coming to India because of my Indian heritage. Uh, you know, it was something that I, I'd always wanted to come to India to either work or study uh, and not just sort of visit and travel around. And so then I started putting feelers out for films that were going to be shooting in India. I didn't feel confident enough to work in the Bollywood industry. Uh, I thought that would be a little bit uh, too difficult for me in very, for various reasons. Uh, so, but I thought going to international productions, I was quite reasonably experienced by that time. Uh, and um, so I, I got uh, hired on, um, on the movie Earth, uh, 1947, which Deepa Mehta directed and Amir Khan was the main actor in. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was shooting mainly in Delhi. Uh, that was my first production in India. I was the first assistant director and second unit director on that film. Yeah. And it was a great experience, a very difficult experience, but very like exhilarating. And, you know, I felt very at home in India from, from day one. And, um, and then, you know, I started to get offered uh, lots of other productions. I mean, pretty much all the international productions that were coming to India, whether they, they were features or commercials, uh, they would always call me and offer me the job. Sometimes I took it, sometimes I couldn't. Um, but um, so I ended up coming to India for three, four months out of every year, mainly in the, in the Northern Hemisphere winter, which is always a nice time to come. Uh, and that's when the foreign movies tend to shoot here. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, and I, I got sort of sucked into the film industry, let's say. I, I intended to finish my PhD in history. Uh, and, you know, for many, many years, I still harbored that, you know, I still kept telling people that, well, I'm just, you know, Temporarily in the film industry, and yeah, but then as many years passed, I had to sort of concede that I, you know, was actually no longer temporarily working in the film industry. And you know, I'm a firm believer that actually we don't really we have a lot of filmmakers who are very technically gifted, but don't really have a lot of knowledge about the world on any specific subject. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I often feel it's actually we need to train more people who know about things to make films rather than just let people who know how to make films kind of dabble in different subjects. Um, that's so that's what that was sort of the you know the, the, the mindset and the approach I took to teaching uh, the graduate students at, at Central European University who are mostly historians who have you know extreme 
familiarity with their subject matter and you know are, are great storytellers sometimes people are like you know it's such a strange transition from historian to filmmaker i was like right. no, it's not <laughs> if you yeah. think that then you don't know anything about either profession i mean we do the same thing we basically weave narratives and we research and we you know form a, a, a fully rounded understanding of a topic and we create narratives out of that that's what that's what we do as filmmakers that's what we do as, as historians so um yeah wow. that's how that's how i see it as actually being a very sort of harmonious kind of true. dual existence true yeah. i mean i think the same even with because i'm fascinated with psychology and i think both are so interlinked like and just like you were cool. saying you know even in terms of um uh, just the connection i just feel like sometimes as actors like some of the best advice i think i've been given is just like actually not to just focus on the acting, but focus on living and having life experiences because it makes you a better actor. So I can completely understand that. Sure. Um, what has your, since you've had such a breadth of experience and you know, working from Europe to Canada to India now, um, how do you feel like storytelling is, obviously it's universal in some sense, but what, what, have, what are the common factors that you have noticed working in multiple industries now and what what makes it vastly different as well and where, where i mean you i know you're in india currently is that your is that where you're most comfortable working if you had to pick one i think i actually probably most comfortable working in germany to be honest really um, just because the people are reliable <laughs> <laughs> i have to <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I seem to have situated myself in a lot of places where the people are uh, kind of um, unpredictable. Let's put it that way. That's a terrible <laughs> way to put it. I grew up loving the idea of being able to, I grew up very poor. And, uh, you know, for me, any trip I took was, was such a gift, you know, even if it was just a road trip down to the other shore of, of Nova Scotia where I grew up. So, um, you know, I dreamt of, I used to study the globe. I got a globe for my fifth birthday from my mother and I studied that. I knew every, every geographical feature in the world. Wow. I studied books of, you know, learning every flag, learning every uh, river and mountain range and, um, you know, dreamt of going to all these places. And I, you know, imagined somehow making a life where I would be able to travel. And, you know, Luckily, that is, has worked out really well in, in working in film and in history, actually. You know, it, it, both of those sort of uh, vocations have enabled me to, to to travel a lot, aside from pleasure travel, of course, which I've done a lot of as well. So, I mean, I've worked in, in terms of shooting, I've worked in about 40 countries. Wow. And if you add, like, if you add, you know, festivals and masterclasses and stuff, I guess it would probably be about 65 or 70 countries. Filmmaking is essentially you're making a recording. Like we are, we are film, we're making a film right now in a sense. Right. Um, so, you know, and sometimes people say to me, particularly in India, you know, until very recently, most people here that I had spoken to, pretty much you could tell had never watched a documentary by choice. <laughs> if they watched it, it was like, you know, in school, a kind of educational film and what have you. And it's very negative sort of ideas about documentary. And about documentary filmmakers, you know, I think they felt, felt like, okay, if you're making a documentary film or nonfiction or unscripted films, whatever you want to call them, um, mm -hmm. that you were sort of a loser, you know, that you basically couldn't make it doing real films, you know. So, so people would ask me, you know, oh, you know, you've gone to all these festivals and you've won all these awards. Don't you want to make like a real film sometime? Like, <laughs> films? You're not interested in films? 
So <laughs> right. uh, that's the mindset, you know, and it's like mindset might be different somewhere else, or maybe they're just saying what people think elsewhere, you know, things are constantly changing now. So, True. you know, in my last project that just launched on Netflix uh, sometime back is, you know, was seen by many people who had never seen a documentary before, mm -hmm. you know, again, willingly. And uh, so you know, people are writing to me, young people in particular, writing to me and saying, you know, I never... I've, I've never watched a documentary and I didn't realize it could be so gripping and interesting and compelling. And I want to see more now, you know, and what, what should I see? <laughs> I mean, you know, which is actually is quite nice in a way to, to have that kind of audience, you know, that is For really sure. just, you know, having when your work can actually impact them so strongly just because of their personal history. Um, you know, a very powerful medium that we are working in. Uh, sure. you know, we have a, a, a huge social responsibility, which I don't think very many um, people on the, you know, on the decision-making side necessarily yeah. prioritize. Uh, yeah. So. Very true. Very true. And uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's not a lot of those kind of, there's not a lot of that content coming out. I know very recently I had seen um, McQueen anthology series, which sort of premiered at the BFI, but it's having a huge impact on, on so many people because it talks about something very relevant, you know, also being the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, which we've seen happen and just the like racial inequality. And I think, I think there's somewhere is a responsibility, right? When you're in this sphere to tell stories, which, which do impact like you, like you very rightly said, and you mentioned documentaries then. So obviously you, you were also part of a landmark documentary called Fire in the Blood and, and, and got awards for that. Was that the point in your career, which you actually thought like, this is something that I should definitely continue doing? I know what you, you said at the beginning that you were sort of in denial for a while, whether this was going to be like your full-time thing or whether it was, you know, the, the historian in you wanted to go back. Um, but film kept pulling you in and more and more opportunities kept arriving. Um, and I find it very interesting with the awards thing and with, with the fact that so much of it is determined on how well something does, you know, like if a, if a series is going to continue, if it's going to get that second season um, because the TRP is good or whatever, like so much is on that validation that we have to have, which actually carves out in our careers in a way. Um, how much do you think you rely upon that? Do you think filmmaking is something that you would continue to do regardless of had you not got those awards, had they, had you not been so acclaimed and had those movies not left the impact that they did? Uh, well, it's hard to say, you know, I, I think, you know, when you make a film uh, like Fire in the Blood, you, I mean, you have to believe that it's going to have a big impact. That's because it is very difficult to, to make a film like that in terms of, you know, the personal cost, uh, the uncertainty that surrounds it. I mean, you have to have a lot of belief in the importance uh, and the viability of the project. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I feel fortunate um, that a few people, um, who believed in me and believed in that project, um, you know, were people whose paths, you know, who, who's, who, who, with whom I crossed paths because had it not happened that way, it could have been a very different story. I mean, you know, there's so many things that can take you in a different direction. 
you know, I've gone to many film festivals and in every single film festival pretty much that I've ever been to, I see wonderful films uh, that I never hear about ever again, you know, and um, it's so much of it is the partnerships that you strike, uh, the decisions you make about who you're going to partner with, about where your film premieres, who the sales agents are, who the you know, who, who happens to see it that believes in it at an, at an important juncture and at, at a crucial stage, uh, who, the cha who champions those films. Um, and likewise, you know, if you make the wrong decision at any one of those points, it can just derail the film completely and nobody will ever hear about it. And that film will be deemed a failure and you might have a very difficult time making films in the future. Um, so, and likewise, I think there are very uh, mediocre films which have gone on to great acclaim because they have been championed by a key person or one or two key people at a certain time, or because somebody associated the, with the film had a lot of a lot of clout at that particular moment. And you know, a lot of it is timing, you know, or the subject matter somehow was very, very, um, you know, hit at just the right moment, you know, even if the film wasn't great. So there's so many things like that that come into it. You know, I, I like I said, having been to so many festivals and seen so many great films that got lost. I, I don't uh, assume everything, you know, I, I would not make the assumption that good films will find their audience. I think yeah. there's a certain hunger for validation as well, that, yeah. you know, there's a, there's this huge mainstream industry, which is very commercial. Um, and anybody that operates even on the periphery of that industry will often seek a lot of validation uh, you know, for their cultural merits of, of projects. But at the same time, they're also seeking validation within that mainstream commercial industry. So mm -hmm. these things are independent in certain respect, but, you know, uh, they often sort of hyped up as being, you know, these great works of art, which is quite dubious in my opinion in many cases. And, but uh, at the same time, you know, there are wonderful films being made in India, which yeah. never even get released here in Mumbai in the theaters, you know? Like their films from certainly regional cinema and right in our backyard, you know, the, the Marathi film industry is making wonderful films, mm -hmm. at least three or four of them a year. You know, the Southern film industry, the Bengali industry, et cetera. So it's happening, but those films don't even see the light of day in Mumbai. They, if they do, it's only, you know, during one of the film festivals that happen, you know, for a few weeks of the year. You, you mentioned, obviously, the other documentary you're referring to as Bad Boy Billionaires on Netflix. Um, what made you want to tell this story? I know you directed just the first episode, but uh, like you said, it received uh, a, lot, a lot of love. You know, people never having seen documentary, really appreciating it, especially in India as well. Uh, what, yeah, what drove you to want to tell this story? Uh, well, nothing really. I mean, the thing was that I got contacted. I got called from London, uh, the production company that had been commissioned by Netflix to make the films. and. Um, I had a choice of which film to do, so I, you know, I undertook my own research, um, mm -hmm. and then I decided to do Vijimalia, in part because that was the pilot, that was the, the lead, the first film of the of the series. Secondly, um, you know, I just figured that would be the one that people would be most interested in, mm -hmm. and also having done my research, I thought it would be a film that. First of all, I, when I started to do my research, I realized I had a lot of misconceptions about Vijimalia. I thought that the story was very well known. So initially I wasn't really attracted to doing it because I figured like, why tell a story that people know already? Um, right. But then 
when I started to do my own research, you know, and I lived here in, in Mumbai, you know, throughout that period when he was sort of at the height of his notoriety. So even I thought I had a pretty good handle on what the story was. And I soon realized I actually had a lot of wrong ideas about him and about what happened during this whole story. Uh, that piqued my curiosity. And then I also thought there were a lot of interesting themes that could be explored, you know, to good effect in making this film. Uh, you know, he came from, you know, he had this sort of uh, label as a, being a liquor baron uh, in a country which has a notorious love-hate relationship with alcohol all the way back to Gandhi and, and long before. And, um, you know, in a way, he was a perfect uh, scapegoat for a sort of a right-wing, um, very uh, fundamentalist religious kind of regime to focus on because he was sort of the epitome of, of Western decadent kind of lifestyle. And, you know, he was largely responsible for popularizing um, alcohol among the youth in India during the uh, 80s, 90s, and 2000s um, in a way, and, you know, celebrating it as something positive and fun uh, rather than sort of, you know, shameful and secretive, which is sort of how alcohol had been sort of either marketed or just, you know, um, viewed in society prior to that. So, um, yeah, I... I and lastly, I mean, looking at the other characters, I felt that uh, Malia would be the one I would be able to paint a much more authentic picture of as a human being because I, you know, there were, there were people that were close to him who had gone on record. And, you know, people I knew who knew him and knew his friends and knew his circle um, sort of validated that idea that, that those people, you know, give it, under the right circumstances would, would come and talk. Whereas people, some of the others, I won't name names, but some of the others, even people that hate them and despise them would not come on camera and talk about them because they worry about the repercussions of doing that. You right. know, because those people are notoriously sensitive and will hold a life, lifelong sort of, Grudge. you know, vendetta you know, against <laughs> anybody that would even sort of remotely, peripherally sort of criticize them. So mm. that's what, uh, yeah, so that's how the project came about. And the thing was, I'd been talking to Netflix about some other projects and um, this was the first time they came to me and actually offered me something uh, concrete and said, you know, will you do it? <laughs> and I thought also it would be a good idea to do it. <laughs> like this is the first time that we've been talking about various other projects and, you know, it looked like, you know, there could be a sort of a long-term collaboration. Fire in the Blood is also on Netflix. Yeah. Well, I mean, other than, of course, projects, you know, getting delayed or um, shelved or, you know, whatever it is, what are some of the other challenges that you particular have, particularly have faced as a filmmaker um, that you potentially keep coming up against or something which, which I, I suppose is quite uh, specific to, to, to the entertainment world? Current environment is very cautious, let's say. I think, um, you know, there, there is a certain amount of innovation happening that people talk about and hear about, but, you know, generally it's, um, I think, you know, a lot of the people at the platforms and now that, you know, the, the name of the game these days is of course the streaming platforms and everybody's sort of looking to mm. get uh, projects on the stream platforms. Um, and uh, you know they they are they are quite cautious. I think they're not as cautious as producers think they are because what ends up happening a lot is producers will tell the you know me for example well the stream platforms tell us they want X Y Z right, right? Um, so that we have to give them X Y Z 
And then the next week it'll be like, well, they don't, now they're saying they want YZQ. So now we have to give them YZQ. <laughs> and, you know, my, my, um, see, I know, I also know some of the people that work at these platforms reasonably well. And I think they do say that they do when, you know, when the producers ask them, what do you want? And then they say, we want XYZ. Um, that doesn't mean they're close to getting something else. But yeah. oftentimes the producers, you know, the producers are very reluctant to, because a lot of this ends up being now about series and series are, uh, you know, they, they take a certain amount of time and money to develop. Um, so the producers then don't want to take a chance on something right. different, you know, but I think if they did, and even, you know, even if it's not developed, but even if it's a fairly embryo embryonic idea, I think if they did, a lot of the people at the platforms would be, would be interested. It's just mm -hmm. that they don't do it because they're like, well, you told us you want X, Y, Z. So, you know, they, then they go back to the creators and they're like, you know, this is what they need and you have to give us that. Or if you can't give us that, then <laughs> we're not going to do anything. Um, and that's very, you know, that's very, uh, you know, it's disheartening because you end up sort of, it's just repeating things that have been done a lot before. Um, and I don't think the audience is stupid and I don't think they really right. just want to see the exact same stuff again. And you mm -hmm. see a lot of very lazy kind of narratives uh, here in India, for example, you know, I had made a joke at some point in one Twitter, you know, it was like, please, please point me to a web series that does not either have a wedding or, a, <laughs> or people, t or people fire like shooting guns or take or pulling guns on each other. You know, right. it's just like, that's what, that's what passes for drama is like some, somebody will like take out a gun and start, you know, it's just, it's just very lazy, you know, I mean, uh, or it's like, oh, the brother double crossed them. It's like, there's these very lame kind of twists that they want, you know, and they're like, well, we, you know, we don't want it, but it's, the, they always sort of blame it on the audience and they blame right. it. They're all those people, the audience is so primitive and the people that work at the platforms are so primitive that this is what we have to give them. I mean, we like, we're like you, we want to, which is very frustrating because, you know, the problem is then you can't even have a discussion about it because they, they're sort of disavowing. It's like, we want X, Y, Z, but we don't really want it, but we have to give it because that's what the platforms want. Sure. And that's actually what the platforms feel the audience wants. There's so many problems uh, in the political discourse and the social discourse in these countries uh, that really needs urgent addressing and urgent input from creators. Right. And, you will not find that on these platforms. You just will not. You get you. I mean, I challenge anybody to tell me otherwise or to point out examples of where they will find it on, on these platforms because that is not how they operate. You know, they yeah. operate hand in glove with the establishment politics and the, it, it's all about, it's all about money. It's all about consolidating your position, growing your subscriber base, having minimizing the interference that is thrown your way. I'm not saying that's even a bad thing because they do give us a lot, you know, but it's not, uh, you have to be realistic about how much they are actually going to contribute to True. social discussion, to social discourse, to political discourse, or, or artistic expansion, um, mm. or cultural growth, you know, you have to first and foremost say, okay, here I am, I'm working for a huge corporation. And then you, everything kind of stems from that. Right. You, know, you sort of it's a in life is a negotiation you're always sort of trying to carve out more space for yourself but you, you know you, you, i think it is important to be clear-minded about that aspect of it
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because as you were talking, I was kind of reminded of the 2020. So obviously, I mentioned before the the Black Lives Matter movement, but the impact that had even on something as um, something like casting, for example, was huge, at least in the UK. Uh, I mean, America is way ahead in terms of their choices, and I think their diverse representation, but here in the UK, it's much, much less. And I think suddenly, you know, casting directors um, were having a lot of conversations about this and about challenging the system, which essentially is uh, white dominant, or at least favoring, you know, Caucasian actors, um, as opposed to BAME actors. Um, so uh, I, I, it really reminded me of that one. And also the fact that, I mean, as we're recording, this is going to release obviously way ahead, but as we're recording today at this point of time, uh, the Queen series, which I also mentioned, has been shown to have a much lower TRP to a show like I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. I don't know if you know about this show, but it's a reality show uh, with celebs thrown into a jungle uh, which is getting far more views and you know there is this discussion this kind of sector of society feeling very appalled that that is favored um but at the end of the day yeah i mean you know people do want to be entertained as well especially like if they're facing doom and gloom in their lives so i think it's, it's definitely always there's, there's always going to be some kind of conflict there um, you, you mentioned something earlier on in terms of when you were g gifted a globe. I found that very interesting as well, because what is your thoughts on this idea? I feel like you you clearly were um, e exposed to this idea that there is such a big world out there that travel is possible, even though you mentioned you were poor. Um, and I'm just so interested in mindset and how it works as well. And I feel like that seeing that day in day out ingrained the the idea of possibility into your mind that travel also being possible and that you potentially attracted all the opportunities that you did end up getting so uh in terms of what are your thoughts on this idea then that we can literally have a vision board and attract all these wonderful things that we may want if we just expose ourselves to the possibility Well, I mean, uh, I, I would say, first of all, I mean, the, the person that gave me the globe was my mother. Um, you know, I grew up in a single parent household. My mother was uh, a refugee. She was an immigrant. Uh, she had uh, spent her whole life being either extremely poor or relatively poor, depending on which pays. Uh, and, you know, uh, when my mom was uh, a kid, uh, you know, her, her little brother was shot beside her, uh, you know, a few feet away from her and killed. Uh, and she, you know, survived a, a horrible flight from, uh, you know, as a refugee from East Prussia to Denmark and uh, grew up in Germany after the war where they were shunned as, as outsiders. And, you know, my, my grandmother had to feed her kids uh, from garbage cans and stuff like that. So, they, you know, they were extremely poor. My mother, nonetheless, you know, managed to... Uh, at the age of 16, make her way to London and uh, on a scholarship. And she was passionate about culture and travel. And she traveled, uh, you know, very widely without having any money. So, you know, I, it was sort of an example to me that, you know, you didn't need a lot of money to find a way to see the world. And if, you, if that was important to you, you should do it and you could do it. Um, and, you know, when you said the opportunities sort of came to me, I mean, it was very much in a conscious thing, you know, I chose the opportunities that 
I thought were interesting, not just uh, in terms of career advancement, but also in terms of uh, mental advancement, let's say, you know, in terms, in terms of expanding my own horizons in terms of going to new places. Yeah, it's, I think, you know, you make choices in life. I, 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 one thing I can say is that, you know, both my parents, I mean, like I said, I grew up in a single parent household, but my father was, you know, also on the scene in, in certain respects. And, um, you know, both my parents were extremely passionate about their work and they loved what they did. And, you know, they were definitely people that believed, you know, you can do what you want to do. You can, you can live the life you want to live. You just have to fi figure out how, you know, but you can, if, you know, it's, it's yeah. the first thing you do is make the choice, like what kind of life you want to live. And then, you know, the hows and wherefores, you know, they, they, those are secondary in a sense. And that's, you know, that's the sort of ethos with which I was raised. So I did, you know, despite growing up poor and in a very isolated kind of place, I never really thought that that was my destiny, <laughs> you know? Not that I thought my destiny was a, as to be a great whatever, but uh, just, you know, from my own parents, I, you know, had the idea that, okay, you, you, you make the life that you want for yourself and, and, and you follow that. Yeah. And there'll be bumps along the way, but, you know, that's how it goes. Yeah, you, know, you still have to try to keep pushing in that in that direction. Yeah, for, for sure. Do you feel this struggle between obviously making the content that you really want to make? And like you said, obviously, you still get asked like in terms of uh, there's that expectancy that surely you would want to make a commercial film. Maybe not a commercial Bollywood film, but a commercial film, which is a theatrical release, which, you know, potentially could do exceptionally well at the box office and tick all those boxes. Is that something which really interests you? Or do you see yourself being a very specific type of filmmaker, having a specific niche, and you're satisfied with making that choice? Uh, well, I'll answer the second part first. I, you know, I don't think of myself as being a very specific type of filmmaker. And, you know, I also enjoy commercial films sometimes, for sure. You know, I'm like uh, definitely not a film snob. Um, yeah. And, you know, in, in, I would say the single most important, they, two things for me when I make films is, one, it's very important that they be accessible. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm definitely not trying to preach to the choir. Um, and also, I would like to make films that people don't forget uh, immediately after watching. And when I say have impact, it doesn't mean that it has to have a, you know, laws have to be changed or what have you. Um, right. I just like to actually sort of make an impression on somebody's uh, consciousness and that can be done with humor as well. It doesn't have to be a very serious uh, kind of weighty thing. It can be, you know, even a, a entertainment driven um, kind of impetus. But I, I, what I don't want to do is make films that people can just sort of watch as junk food and throw away and not think about again. You know, I really... I really like to think of films as conversation starters and I would be very disappointed if my films didn't start conversations. There was a time when I was really in love with films and I don't think I am now and probably healthier not to be. Um, but, um, you know, there are definitely a lot of films that I appreciate. And, uh, you know, if I, if somebody comes to me with a project or if I think of an idea or if I, you know, read a script or what have you, it's always like, I try to think of how I could make this into something that I think will really work uh, and, and, and do the things that I mentioned, you know, that uh, be accessible, not preach to the choir, um, expand the audience for that type of film if possible, you know, reach out to 
new audiences. So that's why I said you know, it's very, it's very, uh, it's very heartening and and positive for me when somebody writes to me or calls me or or meets me and says, you know, I've never seen a film like yours before, and I'm really glad I did. Now I want to watch lots of others, or I want to find out more about the subject, or, you know, because that's expanding the audience. You know, yeah. you're not just sort of, you know, you're not just sort of giving people what you think they want because they've watched a hundred things like that before. So with Fire of the Blood, it was very much like that. You know, the thing that actually, you know, I wasn't even making documentaries at that time, but the thing that drove me to make that film was the fact was, you know, I, I came across it in a newspaper article, you know, that sort of piqued my curiosity, again, as a conversation starter. And, um, you know, it was a, seemed to be a really big story that I'd never heard anything about. And when I started looking for more, there, it wasn't that easy to find uh, a lot more. Um, and, you know, it, it, it just showed me that, you know, that this, this is an untold story, you know, and that it's actually really, really important um, and concerns the unnecessary deaths of double the number of people that died in the Holocaust. That's what I say. I want my films to be accessible. It's really sharing that experience with, an, with a much wider audience. Because obviously, not everybody is a filmmaker, not everybody's a writer, not everybody is a is you know a policymaker or whatever you know has this sort of ability to you know share an experience they have with a multitude of others um, and you know that's is sort of our our a blessing and a curse in a way i mean it's it's our it's our job quite honestly, mm -hmm. you know that we are sort of interpreters of life in a sense um, and uh you know, uh, some of this stuff is very important. Some of it is very meaningful and very impactful. And, you know, you can actually do a lot of damage or you can do a lot of good. That's the prospect that, that is out there, you know? So obviously you prefer to do the, la the latter. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's so true. And I think it's, it's so right. You, you rightly said that it is an experience for sure. I think it's exciting even to be as part of an audience and, and just realize that you're learning something new. I think that is, that is an exciting yeah. part of the journey for sure. Well, Dylan, it was so great to have you on Unplugged, just sharing a little bit about your story and having this conversation. So thank you for jumping on. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And that was the end of another episode on Unplug with Annie. We're continuing this series next week. Until then, stay tuned with everything Unplug on the IG and Facebook page, Unplug with Annie, and also the website www.unplugwithannie.com. If you'd like to sign up to the newsletters, you can do so on the website and you will receive special newsletters every week, way before Sunday's release. So you get to know ahead of time who Sunday's guest is a little more in-depth detail about the guest um, and lots more of course so stay tuned till next week